0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 16. Before I read the Ephesians passage, I'm also going to read to you from Matthew chapter 28. You don't need to turn there. You can just listen as I read to you the very well-known words of Jesus that we've been considering over the last few weeks about the Great Commission. In Matthew, we read that as the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers... Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would show us wonderful things from this portion of your word. And I pray in particular that we would have a glimpse, that we would have an apprehension of the greatest love of all. Your love for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we apprehend and begin to get a glimpse of the significance and depth of your love for us, I pray that you would help us to be moved to love others pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a quick recap of what we've been doing over the last couple of Sundays. The four Sundays leading up to Christmas are traditionally referred to as Advent or the season of Advent. Advent is a Latin term. It comes from a Latin term that means coming or arrival. And that Latin term actually translates a Greek word from the New Testament that talks about the second coming of Jesus. And the season of Advent, these four Sundays before Christmas, is traditionally been used as a time to help God's people to reflect on the first Advent, the first coming of Jesus, and how we are to prepare and get ready for his second Advent, his second coming. In light of his first coming, how are we to be ready and prepared for his second coming? We live between the advents, between the first and the second advent. And how is it that we are to be ready and prepared? One of the things that we've been talking about over these last couple weeks of Advent is that Jesus actually gave his disciples instructions for how they are to be ready, what they are to be doing, how they are to get prepared for his second coming. We often refer to that command that he gives his disciples as the great commission. That's what I read to you from Matthew chapter 28. Jesus there gives his disciples a command. He gives them a commission that they are to make disciples of all nations. They are to go out and to reach people with the gospel and they are to equip people with the word of truth. And because Jesus knows that his disciples often hesitate in that massive commission that he gives to us. We looked a couple weeks ago about the fact that Jesus also gave his disciples motivation so that we wouldn't hesitate. He tells them that as we go out to make disciples of the nations, we go out with the power, with the authority of Jesus himself. And not only with his power and authority, but also with Jesus himself, with his very presence as he goes with us two sundays ago on the first sunday of advent we looked at the great commission itself we looked at that command that jesus gives to his disciples that we are to make disciples of the nations last sunday on the second advent second sunday of advent we looked at we started looking at this ephesians 4 passage that we're looking at again today and we saw last week the first part of the picture that paul gives to us about what it looks like for us to go out and make disciples Last week, we saw the first half, first part of this picture, that what it means for us to go out and to make disciples is that we are to be making disciples who are growing in their knowledge and their love for the Lord. That's true for us as disciples, but it's also true for us as we go out to make disciples, that we would be making disciples who are growing in their knowledge and understanding of the Lord, but also in their love for the Lord. And today... What I want us to do is to look at the second of those three things that Paul gives us in a picture here in Ephesians. Not only are we to be growing in our knowledge and love for the Lord, but we are to be growing in our knowledge and our love for others. That's part of what it means to make disciples. We, as disciples, are to be growing in our knowledge and our love for others. And we're to be making disciples who are growing in their knowledge and their love for So what I want us to do today is to look at four things, the picture of what it looks like to grow in our knowledge and love for the Lord, the necessity of it, it's not an option, the motivation that we have for doing it, and then we'll finish by looking at the practice of it. So first of all, the picture that Paul gives us of what it looks like for us to grow in our knowledge and love. For others, it's in verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4. Rather, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The language that Paul is using here as he gives us a picture of what it what it looks like to, to grow in our love for others is a picture of dependence. He he talks about the whole body, so he's using here an analogy of our human bodies to tell us and describe to us about the body of Christ, God's people. And he says we are a whole body But there is also joints and parts to that body as we individually are forming the body of Christ. And notice what he talks about here. It's it's a sense of dependence upon one another. That as we work together, as we rely on one another, as we serve one another, we help one another to grow. As dependent parts rely upon one another and work together, he says here in the passage, it makes the body to grow in love. Every individual has a part to play. We are to be loving one another, serving one another, and as we do that, the body, that is us, God's people, grow and mature. And notice it's a dependence not just so that we will grow, but it's also a dependence so that we can work properly. Held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, Paul says. We depend on one another to to each play the role and the part that God gives us in the family of God to do the work that He's called us to do. And as all the parts are working together properly, the body grows and builds itself up in love. In other words, we are deficient when we aren't working together as God intended us to work. I'm not going to take the time now to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But I would commend it to you perhaps this afternoon you can open the Bible and read from First Corinthians 12 where Paul speaking to a different church uses very similar language as he's speaking here. He uses the analogy of the human body there and he talks about specific body parts, the noses and the feet and the hands. And it's this picture of each of us individually. We, we have a part and a role to play just like our own bodies have various parts to them. And we need all of those parts to be working together. They're dependent upon one another. Uh, if not then we'll run into walls and doors we won't smell a fire that's breaking out in our house we might stub our toe on something if our body parts aren't working in sync to one another and that's the same picture that paul's giving us here of what it partly looks like to love others is that we are depending upon one another to grow and to work properly but that's only part of the picture that he gives us here of depending on one another. That's part of what it means to grow in our love for each other is to grow in our dependence upon one another. But the other part of the picture he gives us is in verse 15. Rather, we are to be speaking the truth in love. Another part of the picture of what it looks like to be growing in our knowledge and our love for others is that we are speaking truth in love. Speaking truth, Paul says, he uses there a present active participle. It means to speak, to act, to deal truthfully. It's an ongoing activity. Some of the translations turn the word truth into a verb that we are to be truthing to one another. It's a good translation of of what Paul is speaking about here. Part of what it means to love others is that we speak truth to one another. We speak the truth. What truth is Paul speaking about? Well, it is, in general, the Word of God in its entirety. But Paul was speaking even more particularly. We know from chapter 1 that he said that the word of truth that he's referring to is nothing less than the gospel of our salvation. That's the truth that we speak to one another. We speak the entirety of God's word that is truth to one another. And specifically, we speak the gospel of our salvation to one another. Speaking the truth of the gospel of salvation to each other. Even when we have to have hard conversations, sometimes the truth has to cut. It has to cut us to our hearts. But we don't shrink back from speaking truth, even when it's hard things. And I think that's the reason why Paul not only told us that we're to speak truth, but he told us how we're to do it. Speaking truth in love, he says. Truthing with one another, speaking truth, is always to be done in love. That idea permeates this entire letter that Paul was writing. The idea of truth in love. But you can see it even particularly in this shorter section that we're looking at. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. The verse we're looking at, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, that when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In chapter 5, the first two verses, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What motivates us is love. The truth that we speak is to be fused with compassion and care and genuine concern and earnest desire for the good of God. And the growth of others to build one another up. So what motivates us to speak truth is love. But love is also to characterize how we speak to one another. It's not only what moves us to speak truth. It actually characterizes how we speak. One author uh, thinking about the idea of truth in love wrote this. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace and love. Here is the picture that Paul is giving to us of making disciples who are growing in their knowledge and their love for others. It is depending upon one another more and more. Working together to help one another to grow and to mature and to be built up. It is speaking the truth of the Word of God and in particular the gospel of our salvation to one another that is both motivated by love and characterized by love. That's the picture that Paul gives us of what it looks like to be growing in our knowledge and our love for others. The Bible also tells us that this is not optional. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, it's not optional. You must love others. If you still have your Bibles open, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. If you're not sure where that is, if you have your Bible open to the passage we're looking at in Ephesians, if you just go write several books, you'll come to 1 John, almost to the end of the Bible. If you get to Revelation, you went just a little bit too far. 1 John chapter 4. We used part of this passage for our scripture reading earlier in the service. John speaking says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 1 John 4 verse 7. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then down in verses 20 and 21. If anyone says that I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John says that if you don't love others, then you don't know God. He said that if you don't love others, you can't say that you love God. Don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this because it's so clear. The vertical love that we have for the Lord necessarily means that we are to have a horizontal love for others. It's how that we know that our love for the Lord is genuine and legitimate. But that doesn't mean that it's easy, does it? It's not easy to love one another. In fact, it's quite difficult. The lead singer for the rock group U2, Bono, arguably one of the world's greatest and famous rock stars, uh, had a book that was put out in 2005 where he and a journalist sat down and had a question and answer session over all kinds of topics. uh, And they put all of those questions and answers into the book. In one part of the book, the journalist who was interviewing him uh, asked Bono some questions. And it was right after the Madrid train bombings that took place in 2004. And as Bono reflected on the terrorism that had taken place and what had motivated that terrorism, he turned the discussion to Christianity. Listen to what he said. My understanding of the scriptures has been made simple by the person of Christ. Christ teaches that God is love. What does that mean? What it means for me, a study of the life of Christ. Love here describes itself as a child born in straw and poverty, the most vulnerable situation of all without honor. I don't let my religious world get too complicated. I think I know what God is. God is love. And as much as I respond in allowing myself to be transformed by that love and acting in that love, that's my religion. Where things get complicated for me, he said, is when I try to live out that love. Now that is not so easy. And he's right, isn't he? It is hard to love Others. And oh, yes, we have many reasons for why it is hard. Perhaps we would say it's hard because people make it hard to love them. People are messy. People are inconvenient. People take a lot of time. <laughs> But there's really something else that's at the root of all of those things. Those may be our excuses for why it's hard to love others. But what's at the root of all of those things? The reason why it's so hard for us to love others is because we are selfish. Loving others is not easy because we're selfish. We, uh, loving others infringes upon our own freedom and comfort and peace. It is easy to love others when we benefit from it. When we get something out of it. But the kind of love that the Bible calls us to is not easy. It is a sacrificial, humble, giving, servant-oriented love. And that is not easy to do. And so if we're going to overcome our difficulty of loving others, if we're going to overcome our selfishness, then we better have some kind of overpowering motivation that we might love others. And thankfully, the Bible gives it to us. If you flip back to the Ephesians passage, it's all through those last two verses. Rather, speaking the truth in love... Paul says we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Who is it that Paul says is the head of the body? From whom the whole body is joined and held together and, and causes it to, to build itself up in love. It is Jesus. We are to grow up into Christ because He is the head of the body. And then from Him, the whole body, God's people, are joined together, depending upon one another, working together and building ourselves up in love. What is our motivation? It is Jesus. Ultimately, it is his love for us that is to motivate us to love others. The love that we have experienced from God through Christ is what motivates us and compels us to love others. And that's what John said back in John chapter 1 John chapter 4. Again, chapter 4 verses 7 and following. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Listen to what he says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And down in verse 19, He says, We love because He, God, first loved us. Here is our motivation, brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes. Loving others is hard. We have so much selfishness that is wrapped into our own hearts and our lives that it is very difficult for us to love people, especially when we don't get anything back. But here is the antidote. Here is our motivation. Here is what will break through our selfishness. We love because He first loved us. We so much less deserve the love of God for us and yet God has loved us so much more greatly than we will ever love another. If we want to break through our selfishness and to truly love others as we are called to do, then we must have a growing understanding of the love of God for us through Christ. Francis Schaefer got at this. He said, to be really Bible-believing Christians, we need to practice simultaneously, at each step of the way, two biblical principles. One principle is that of the purity of the visible church. And I think there he's speaking about truth, the truth of the church, the truth of the visible church. Scripture commands that we must do more than just talk about the purity of the visible church. We must actually practice it, even when it's costly. The second principle is that of an observable love among all true Christians. In the flesh, Schaefer says, in our own strength, in our own ability, we can stress purity without love, or we can stress love without purity, but we cannot stress them both. Simultaneously, to do that, we must look moment by moment to the work of Christ and to the Holy Spirit. Without that, a stress on purity becomes hard, proud and legalistic. And likewise, without it, a stress on love becomes sheer compromise. It is only as we look to Christ, as we see his love for us, as we are as we are getting a greater and greater glimpse of the love of God for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will have the power and the ability and the motivation to love others as we have been loved. Let's finish with thinking about some of the ways we can practice this. We can just go back to what Paul was saying in Ephesians. One of the ways that we can love others is by loving others with our words. I mean after all that's exactly what he says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. It's 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 voicing words, it's speaking to one another. We are to be loving to one another in our words. With our words, our words should be motivated by love and our words should be characterized by love. Our motivation must be the love of God for us. Love must be what compels us to speak the truth to one another. But love is also to be the way we speak to one another. It should characterize our speech. And so, I'll just ask you to reflect here for a moment. How have you done speaking to your spouses this week? We had a wonderful wedding here yesterday. It was a beautiful couple made these incredible vows to one another. And I promise you that if last night at the reception, if you had gone up to Jonathan and Michaela and you had said, can you even imagine ever speaking a harsh word to one another? They would laugh and they would say, there's no way. But anybody that's been married more than 18 hours (laughs) knows it is very easy for us to speak harshly to our spouses and not just to our spouses how have you done in speaking to your children to your parents to your co-workers to your boss to your students to your teachers You see, God calls us because we understand the love of God for us through Christ. He calls us. He sends us out to be making disciples who are growing in their knowledge and love for the Lord. And that means that we are to to also be growing in our knowledge and our love for one another. And part of the way that we show that and do that is how we speak to one another. The words that we use must be motivated by love. But the words that we use also must be characterized by love. We practice it not only by speaking in words. That's how one way how we love one another. But we love one another also in deed. It's not just the words we use, but it's also through our actions. In the passage right before the one that I read to you in 1 John 4, John speaking in 1 John 3 says, By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We're called not only to love others with our words, we're called to love others in our actions. John says that we are to be ready to lay down our lives for one another, maybe literally, but at least figuratively, that we would be willing to give our lives over in service to one another. That we would not close our hearts, John says, to those who are in need, but that we would lovingly give the world's goods to those who are in need. That we would love in deed and action, and not just with our words. So, I'll ask you to reflect again. How are you doing in how you are treating others? Not just speaking to them, but how you're treating them. Your spouses, your children, your coworkers, your bosses, your students, your teachers, and your parents. You are to love them not only in how you speak to them, but how you treat them and how you act. A third way we can practice loving others is by loving others with our time. Genuinely loving others takes time. Again, this is where the gospel has to break through our selfishness. Loving others is not always convenient. It can be very time consuming. But the church throughout its history, and especially the early church, we saw this last week in Acts chapter 2, that the early church emphasized what they called the fellowship. It was spending time together in community and fellowship with God's people. Spending time with one another. So what are some things that we can do with our time to help us love others better? Well, we can be gathering together in smaller gatherings of God's people, small groups, spending time getting to know one another, spending time listening to one another, spending time praying for one another and serving one another. We can open our homes to others. We can invite people in, not worrying about how messy our houses might be. We can volunteer our time, something like Family Promise or the New Life uh, Services. Maybe go down to Salvation Army and serve a meal. Or even just serving in the nursery here at Trinity. Those are all ways that we give of our time in loving others. And lastly, we can practice loving others with our words and with our deeds, with our time the last thing that I have for you there on your outlines is inabsorption. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? To love others. To love others well means that there come times when we have to be willing to absorb the pain and disappointment and difficult things that others are going through. Sometimes what that will look like will be absorbing pain with others as our brothers and sisters in Christ, as our neighbors are going through difficult things and experiencing disappointments and and experiencing pain, that we actually be with them and that we help absorb some of those things that they're going through. That's one way we can express our love to them. But it's not just occasionally and on, on whatever occasion God gives us absorbing pain with others. Sometimes God may call us to absorb pain from others. To truly love others, we may be called to absorb things that are said to us that are difficult and hard and even hurtful. Now, I'm not suggesting to you this morning that we just let people walk all over us or that we never address the hurtful and untrue things that might be said. I'm not suggesting that it's okay for people to say hurtful things to us and that there aren't sometimes uh, times for us to push back on those things. But there is something about what Jesus says about turning the other cheek and praying for those who persecute us that involves this idea of absorbing as an expression of our love rather than lashing out. Paul says in, back in Ephesians chapter 4. Something like this. When he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. In love. Again, this forces us back to believe the gospel of grace, believing and trusting and resting in God's love and grace so much that we would have the strength and the ability to be patient and gentle and humble and yes, even bearing with one another in love. Let me finish by just summarizing where we are so far in this study during this time of Advent. We are God's people who are waiting uh, for the second Advent of our Lord. And as we reflect on his first coming and his first Advent, and as we're waiting for his second Advent, we remember that Jesus gave us a commission that we are to be his people making disciples of the nations. And Paul gives us a picture of what that looks like in Ephesians 4. Part of what it looks like is that we're growing in our knowledge and our love for the Lord, a vertical love. But that vertical love necessarily pushes us out horizontally to be loving and growing in our knowledge and love for one another. Paul describes what that looks like. It means depending upon one another, working together, helping one another to grow and to mature, to speak the truth in love to one another. The Bible reminds us that it's not optional, it's a necessity. We don't know God. We don't love God if we don't love others. And thankfully the Bible gives us a powerful motivation. We love because Jesus first loved us. And as we meditate on that, and as it sinks more deeply and deeply into our hearts and our minds, it empowers us to go out and to love others in our words, in our actions, in our time, and yes, even when we're called to, by absorbing difficult things with others and from others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in your word you've recorded this wonderful story of your pursuit your redemption of your people. We thank you that we have the word of God that tells us about your love for your people. I pray that our lives would be dedicated to growing, growing in our knowledge of that love and in our love for you. And Father, as we understand more and more deeply the love that you have for us in Christ and all that that means, I pray that you would move us and motivate us to love others. I pray, Father, that you would do this for your good and your glory, but also for the building up of your church, your body. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.